0: in april 1856 some building tradesmen in melbourne down tools at the university of melbourne one of the largest construction sites in the growing commercial city and began a strike that would lead in a few days with broad social support to them getting the eight hour day one of the first, not the first, but one of the first in the world. This story makes us wonder, how did the 8-hour working day come into being? And is it still relevant to us today? That is the question for today's Burning Archive. I am a Jeff Rich. I am a writer, historian, podcaster poet and very 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 minor government official and this is the burning archive podcast about all things history and culture where the past is never dead the past is not even past and whereby thinking about the past we try to live better in the present Uh, a big shout out to Freya Rich who made uh, last week's show very special and This is the beginning of a uh, little mini-series that is going to look at the seven topics raised by Freya Rich. So, especially if you're a new listener, uh, do check out show number 22 of the Burning Archive podcast. Uh, We'll feature a couple of highlights from that during the show. But I am basically now um, going to follow... The seven topics that Freya identified that that her as a member of a younger generation felt either we uh, make people ought to know or would like to know more about or that are sort of gaps, things that sort of everyone is conscious of, but uh, don't really fully understand the full history and significance of the topic. And there were seven such topics, which were in the order that I'm going to address them. The eight-hour working day, the fall of the Roman Empire, how the three uh, monotheistic f- faiths of Judaism, Islam and Christianity all lay claim to Israel or Jerusalem, the poem Beowulf, the Crusades, the story of Silkworms being stolen from China to uh, Europe and Byzantium and the seven basic plots such as tragedy, quests and so forth. So there are seven big topics that I'm going to follow over the next uh, little while in the lead up to Christmas and then I might Uh, have a couple of other little episodes and we might even have another special guest soon after that. uh, Defining the agenda for the podcast into the new year. Goodness me, it's almost 2022. So today's show is about the eight hour working day. So let's just remind ourselves of how Freya Freya Rich posed the question of the eight hour working day to the burning archive podcast and the eight hour day well that's an interesting topic because that is the topic that i wrote my phd about oh what a coincidence (laughs) what a coincidence so so dad did a phd on the eight hour working day back when he was at uni um which is probably not altogether a pleasant experience slogging slogging away through a PhD. But I didn't just pick it because you did your PhD on it, Dad. I thought it would be a really interesting thing because I think, again, it's something that we have some sort of conception of that this is our sort of working entitlements. and But I don't really know you know, my shame is having you as my father. I don't really know much about it, and so I thought it would be interesting to kind of outline what the eight-hour working day actually is, mm. and then also, and you know, how it came about, which I guess is sort of the history of it. But then also, maybe to, if you if you wanted to, to sort of discuss whether it's still really in place now. So yes, so I actually wrote a PhD, goodness me, about the history of building workers and uh, the nature of work and the the significance of the eight hour working day in the culture of uh, those workers, their sort of life world and the the union movement, the industrial movement, labour movement I guess if you like, in the nineteenth century Victoria. And, of course, it was them, the building workers, who were the first in Victoria to get the eight-hour day in 1856. And I will say a little bit more about them uh, a little bit later. But clearly the eight-hour day is much of broader significance than one little uh, group of workers in 19th century Melbourne. It's a kind of a... uh, guess a cultural marker for how much one should work and and the organization and the division of the day between you know work leisure work family office home all those sorts of things so it's quite a fascinating topic and it sort of brings up I guess the broader is broader set of questions about how work is organized in history uh, and how how there have been varied ways of organising work in history and how the organisation of something like work, the the sort of common understandings we have about, I guess, going to the office and coming, you know, nine to five or that sort of thing, are slowly formed through rather complicated social, cultural and historical processes. Of course, it's also a bit uh, of a fun topic for me to start this one on because it's partly my, my personal story of studying and writing uh, history because this was the topic of my PhD after all. Uh, I guess the big theme of my PhD was all the sort of let's say the subfield in which it was uh, done was in so, sort of social history, but specifically the history of work, and in a way, uh, my PhD was a kind of a response to, uh, as one might imagine, the history of work and workers and the working class and. Uh, labor movements have been pretty much dominated by Marxists or people writing in a Marxist left wing kind of tradition. Of course there are some exceptions but broadly that's the case. But I was not really part of that tradition and I was kind of trying to write a history of those unions and of The nature of work that separated a little bit from classic, sort of Marxist, sort of, and you know, revised Marxist ideas, and looked rather at how complex, I guess, and cultural things were for these people, uh, and looked at the sort of texture, so to speak, of their sort of life world as it presented. To them rather than in fixed terms about them being, you know, champions of the working class or, you know, more or less adequately proletarian. And in that respect, it was also of significance that the type of work that I chose was not your classic factory proletarian work. It was one of those kinds of work that is very common but sort of transcends different kinds of pre- and post-industrial society. After all, people have been building things for a very, very long time, not just under industrial capitalism. So so what is the nature of the experience of those building workers? In a way, the thing with history of the work and looking at the history of the eight-hour day is... There can be sort of like fairy tale histories that we all tell ourselves to some degree about some of these historical things which which do not really take account of the full breadth, complexity, and duration of uh, history and, and how many and for how long things, have been shaped and changing and influence and how long institutions have formed and all that sort of uh, that sort of thing. And after all, people have been regulating the working day through various customs and age and gender roles and institutions and laws and economic systems and different ways of accommodating the variety of human talents and skills and personality variations for a very, very, very long time. Uh, But often in your sort of, particularly in your sort of pundit type versions of history, you get a very, very dumbed down uh, version of that, which is both narrowly focused on, I guess, Western Europe and America and doesn't really look at the whole world nor the whole globe nor does it really look at much much historical experience before let's say 1800 and uh, just in as an example of that there uh, I once was doing some work with a, a very senior highly paid executive in uh, one of the departments of the provincial government in which I work. And he was uh, telling me, uh, trying to uh, look at, you know, how should the health system respond to the different kind of economy that we're in? And he had this argument that now, nowadays we're in a wholly different kind of economy. It's called the experience economy. And the health system had to respond. And he basically said, so there's the, today there's the experience economy. And back in the 20th century, there was the industrial economy. And then back in the 19th century, it was like the pre-industrial economy. And I kind of felt like saying to him, and what was there before the 19th century, Mr. X? "Uh, But I didn't. And he probably wouldn't have really had an answer. So I guess that's a little fairy tale to say that, that it's good in a way to look at the long sweep of history. And that's in a way why, although this is perhaps the most contemporary of the topics that Freya brought out, it's also the one I'm doing first because in a way the social regulation of the eight, of the working day goes back a very, very very long time. In a way we go back to some very deep themes in historical experience. So the way I'm going to address this topic today uh, a rather long sort of preamble introduction but I hope you don't mind. So I'm going to talk about the working day before the industrial revolution uh, before 1800 if you like just in broad terms and so that we understand how things changed in the concept of the eight-hour day and really the century of the formation of the eight-hour day really from this sort of early 19th century to the early 20th century uh, which is I think largely in response to the industrial revolution and global transformations of the 19th century. Then I'm going to look specifically at the meaning the meaning the cultural significance of the eight hour day to those building workers I studied long, long ago when I was doing my PhD, um, who described the eight hour day not just as like some thing in a contract, but a sacred boon. Very almost religious language about the significance of that to their lives. And then finally, I'm going to have some reflections on As I think Freya was suggesting last week, you know, maybe we're losing the sense of the 8-hour day with the gig economy and, you know, working from home and all those kind of things, uh, you know, constantly being on, connected and online and all that sort of thing. So what's the working day like in the contemporary world, especially after what some people call the 4th? Industrial Revolution. So if the 8-hour day is partly a response to the first Industrial Revolution, what should be our response if we're now on to Industrial Revolution number four? Goodness me. So the working day before the Industrial Revolution. Now as I said people have been regulating the working day in various ways through customs and institutions, laws social roles, practical arrangements, but for a very, very long time. After all, the Bible, uh, if we can take that in the Christian tradition, prescribes, and I guess the presumably the Judaic tradition as well, but the Bible prescribes Sunday as a day of rest, and presumably the other six days as days of work. Uh, the Bhagavad Gita, if I Look at the sort of Hindu uh, tradition refers, says you have the right to work, but for the work's sake only. You have no right to the fruits of work. Desire for the fruits of work must never be your motive in working. Never give way to laziness either. And of course, the whole concept of Dharma and duty, taste and all that sort of stuff are are partly ways of big ideas that shape uh, people's roles there have been arguments made that way way back if you like in in pre-agricultural societies hunter and gatherer societies people's actual working day was significantly less than i guess we have now you know like 4 or 4 or 5 hours a day but if we focus more on the post-agricultural revolution uh, period clearly agricultural work of various kinds was the most common dominant form of work before the industrial revolution or really I guess before let's say the early to mid 20th century it was really only then that that agricultural work uh, working on farms etc tended to dissipate and most people did that agricultural work uh, in response to the realities of the seasons and the weather and the length of time, especially in eras where there was no artificial light, the length of uh, length of sunlight. So, you know, less work in winter uh, or less hard physical labor in winter, um, a peak of work around harvest time, all that sort of stuff. And so work was often more seasonal, variable, loosely supervised. So it's very hard to document, well, just how many hours did people work? Because it was highly variable. So one bishop from the 16th century really described how how a typical working day would stretch from dawn to dusk, 16 hours in summer and 8 in winter, called to a halt for breakfast, lunch and the customary afternoon nap, dinner depending on the time and place there were also mid-morning and mid-afternoon refreshment breaks and there were rest periods for the traditional rights of labourers if you like the old uh, smoko which people enjoyed even during peak harvest times there are often slack periods in large parts of the the year and there was just not the same level of uh, I guess focused concentrated discipline about getting maximum bang for the buck and if you like charging uh, every billable hour every billable six minute slot to the client and of course agricultural work wasn't the only kind of work there were clearly slaves there were crafts and trades and builders and merchants and miners and early sort of artisanal factories and sailors and soldiers and the whole gamut of things but in general there was this sense of variable loosely supervised work often more uh, often done like like a, a shoemaker's shop would also be where his home was. Um, if you think about the kind of working lives that are almost presented in, in your sort of classic fairy tale or or even, I guess, sometimes in, dare I say it, in fantasy computer games, there's often this sort of integration, so to speak, of the trade and the craft with a, a less disciplined structured daily life that is actually bound around home and family in a certain way and uh, there was a famous historian E.P. Thompson Edward I think his name was but he's almost universally known as E.P. Thompson uh, (laughs) who wrote the making of the English working class, but he also wrote a very famous essay on time, work discipline and industrial capitalism. And he really argued that there was this sort of moral economy of the pre-industrial world where where the way in which work was done was less structured by sort of time is money, constant supervision, sort of concept of that I guess we're used to in the world of Benjamin Franklin and and, uh, 19th century Dickens and all the rest, or or I guess modern life. Uh, And, for example, he just said, like, in the early 19th century, there's this sudden diffusion of clocks for people to use to regulate their working day rather than respond to, well, is it cloudy out there? Is it raining? I'm not going to go and dig the potatoes if it's raining, am I? Or snowing. So much more uh, of, and in a way, this is an important precondition of the concept of the eight-hour day introducing much more of a sense of time structuring work discipline and supervision into society and the industrial revolution which let's say let's say let's date that say roughly from about 1700 to uh, 1850 beginning really in in uh, Britain and then spreading throughout Europe and and the world the industrial revolution really shakes that up It introduces new kinds of work like factories with uh, large and more uniform and disciplined working arrangements which are much more tightly supervised to get the maximum bang for the buck out of of people. And it's often uh, said that in fact the Industrial Revolution and in that sort of first say 50, 70 years from so the like say the seventeen eighties through to eighteen fifty when our building work eighteen fifties, when our building, building workers start to get the eight hour working day, there's actually a an increase in the number of hours that people tended to work. So various historians and obviously it's a hard thing to do in retrospect, but various historians have looked at how long people worked at different times. So one calculation was around an adult male peasant in Britain uh, in the 13th century who worked out that they did an average of 1,620 hours a year, uh, which was roughly 150 days per family, 12 hours a day. Uh, So about working about half of the year, but about 12 hours a day. Whereas in 1850, the estimate is almost double that, in fact, double that, a range of between. So the average worker in American industry uh, in the 1850s was working between 3,100 and 3,600 hours based on a 70-hour week. Let's say that's 12 hours a day, 70 hours a week. Wow. Wow. 12 hours a day six days a week minus a little bit so there's this big push so to speak in the early 19th century where people are working hard uh, working harder let's say and longer hours more uniform hours with flits less, less accommodation for for the things that happen tending to work in factories and other workplaces away from their home with very little control over it but with a lot of supervision. And in a way, this this work was part of the burst of productivity and increased living standards and economic growth uh, that is celebrated in the Industrial Revolution and the, the rise of living standards in the 19th century. But it was also felt as a shock and an outrage. And one still can read that in the works of Thomas Carlyle and Charles Dickens, and of course, in. Karl Marx. People were seen to be slaves to the machine, slaves to capital, and that they were being dehumanized or alienated in their work. And this really drove both the moral core of, I guess, the labor movement and Marxism and you know radical politics in the 19th century, but it also was part of the drive to regulate and establish clearer rules around creating an eight-hour working day. So it's really in the 19th century then, in response to the Industrial Revolution and various other transformations that are going on across the world in the 19th century, that we see the demands for regulating the eight-hour day kick off. And even more broadly than that, uh, the historian Jürgen Osterhammel, in his book, The Transformation of the World, A Global History of the 19th Century, which is a fabulous book, which looks at all the sort of big processes and enormous changes in the basic fundamentals of life, including how work is organized and time and social roles and all this sort of stuff. He's described as the Brodel of the 19th century, Brodel being uh, the great French historian who wrote about the long durée, the sort of long duration of history, the big slow underlying changes that you don't really notice in the chaos of events but are actually, you know, shaping mentalities and the sort of basic Landscape, so to speak, in which our our daily lives are uh, practiced. So, so he has a whole chapter in the transformation of the world on how, in the nineteenth century, labour working lives, let's say, labour is changed in all sorts of ways, and. Indeed, he says, it's really only in the 19th century that you actually start to get the concept of a regular working day. Things are much more casual and odd jobs and hit and miss and seasonal and um, all that kind of thing. Even starting to develop a broader sense of occupation, including not just amongst working uh, people, but in professional classes sort of regulation of professions and all that sort of thing but apparently in in fact in 1591 Philip II of Spain actually issued an ordinance that there be an eight-hour day across the Spanish empire and this applied even in uh, the Latin American territories of the Spanish empire although not in the mines so all the people Working in, in horrible conditions in the Potosi silver mine were excluded from this uh, fine, fine rule. But I'm not quite sure why that happened. And maybe at one point in my life I might sort of do more thorough historical research and look at the different legal arrangements for working hours in different parts of the world. But... The main story here is really, it's the 19th century and a response to the Industrial Revolution that creates this sort of uh, century of the 8-Hour Day, the formation of the 8-Hour Day. In the early 19th century, the industrialist and philanthropist Robert Owen, who set up a whole lot of kind of Workplaces that were consciously designed to be good workplaces instituted a 10-hour day in his uh, workplaces. That was in 1810. And by 1817, the same Robert Owen had actually formulated a goal of the 8-hour day and coined the slogan, 8 hours labour, 8 hours recreation, 8 hours rest. Which I think is probably also picking up deep themes in the culture because I guess one of the things about history at work is it is part of a cultural history as well but that exact slogan is the one that became the sort of banner headline so to speak for the eight Hours Day movement in the 19th century Melbourne uh, a good 40 or 50 years later Uh, So women and children in England were granted the 10-hour day in 1847. And then, remarkably, in New Zealand and Australia, the first eight-hour days are negotiated in some industries, initially in the building trades, and then sort of start to spread more widely. In 1866, the International Working Men's Association, in which our friend, Karl Marx was active, took up the demand and proposed eight hours as the legal limit of the working day. And, uh, you know, similarly, there were things like factory laws and control over the conditions in which people worked that were going on as well as this. So, so this was all part of a general trend. Uh, not just amongst uh, the labour movement, but also amongst broadly, let's say, small L liberal elites and political leaders to regulate social conditions in a more uh, structured way to bring uh, a more harmonious society and, and to address clear and clear uh, moral outrages, so to speak, that people saw as created by the Industrial Revolution in 1919 in Spain apparently is the first country in the world to introduce a universal law effective on all types of work to introduce a maximum of eight hours and in Australia I mean the various states introduced wages boards which also probably introduced industrial conditions around working hours and there's a sort of a court of arbitration uh, that is, is functioning from the early 20th century in Australia. And then I guess it's sort of officially entrenched at a global level by the International Labour Organization, originally the International Labour Office, which is actually created in 1919 uh, by the Treaty of Versailles. And this establishes uh, a convention on hours of work for industry. And of course, different circumstances in different countries, it all sort of is a particular story that, that varies tremendously. But the broad story... Is that there is this growing, formalised, regulated response via collective action of unions and uh, social movements to to regulate clearly definable work as part of uh, social citizenship in a much more differentiated and, and complex set of labour processes. With you know industrial capitalism, but not just industrial capitalism, but all sorts of workplaces like offices, factories, huge uh, commercial navies, building sites, and the whole whole box and dice. So although often the story is told around, I guess agricultural labour as well, uh, the abolition of serfs and. Uh, slaves in Russia and America means there's more sense that people are actually at at free labor but then doing their labor within some kind of more regulated set of laws and social conditions and social conventions but clearly work is terribly complicated organisation of work is very complicated, it's overlaid with a whole lot of cultural issues but that's the broad story of how the eight hour day emerges as a structured response to both the industrial revolution and other transformations, I guess, involved with a more intensive capital, capital social process around work that occurs really through the early to early 19th century to the early 20th century, and then gets sort of structured and formalized and institutionalized and just assumed. And of course it becomes an iconic aspect of the labor movement, not just in Australia but around the world, and so May Day is in part related to the I think it, it commemorates a strike maybe for the eight hour day somewhere, maybe even in America. But uh, there are many such events, and so in Victoria, Australia, if I can be super local for now. The 8-hour day begins in the building trades on the 21st of April in 1856. And that becomes the day that is celebrated by the Labour movement. Uh, Every year since, at least through the 19th century, it becomes a public holiday in 1879. And then, of course, we have World War I and Anzac Day becomes a holiday. And it's really around about that time that uh, the 8-hour day celebration moves to I think, March, and that's why we have Labor Day in March in Victoria, whereas in Sydney, for example, they got the eight-hour day initially in, I think, 1855, in October in Sydney, and so their Labor Day is actually in early October, and similarly it varies around around the states reflecting that commemoration. Is the story of the growth of the eight hour day? Let's have a little look, shall we, at the cultural significance of the eight hour working day from my PhD. So, one of the things I think I said briefly to my guest, my special guest, Freya Rich, last time was that the eight hour day was not just an industrial condition, it was something which really expressed some f- big aspects of the culture some aspirations and so, uh, uh, you know maybe a little bit uh, similar one can compare it similarly to both ideas today of like work life balance work family you know balance and so eight hours day, eight hours rest, eight hours recreation is fundamentally saying let's have a balanced life, evenly divided across the different fields, so to speak. And also reflecting a, a sort of a claim to citizenship and full participation in society in a period when, you know, there, well, there wasn't full Franchises, although I guess they were really pretty much introduced in Victoria in the eighteen fifties as well. Not not female franchise, but certainly pretty much universal male suffrage was introduced in the eighteen fifties, and so it was it 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 expressed a lot more about people's life and culture than uh, you'd think if you were just seeing it as part of a log of claims from the CFMEU. Let me just quote a few things, and let and you know I can say that. But what's fascinating about history is actually looking back at the voices of the past and hearing them say those sorts of things in their own words. So if I were just to quote a few things here from my uh, PhD, which you can also read in, uh, so I I. I published a uh, one of the chapters from my PhD which was about the culture of the eight-hour day in an essay the traditions and significance of the eight-hour day for building unionists in Victoria 1856 to 1890 published in 2007 in a book called or I think it was a special issue of labor history or something the time of their lives the eight hour day and working life edited by julie kimber and peter love and that was produced in i think 2006 2000 well it was produced for a conference for well, from a conference in 2006 that was commemorating the 150th anniversary of the eight hour day in uh victoria and And I actually gave this paper at the conference, sort of walked up from my office in my suit and spoke to all the sort of uh, lefty Labour historians and then sort of kind of left. But I was very, very grateful for them uh, and the opportunity to actually present some of the work from my PhD to a broader public. There you go. And here I am presenting it to a broader public still. Let's give a Flavour of what it really meant to people back then to actually get an eight hour working day. So I'll quote here a Mr. Lever, who was a carpenter, speaking at a public meeting in March 1856, saying, Was there not something more in man than mere blood and bone and muscle? Hear, hear. Hear, hear. Unless the hours of labour were shortened. The hours of life would be so. There you go. And so they described the 8 day as the sacred gift of time. A glorious boon. And it meant a whole lot more to them than just better paying conditions. A George Sparks, who spoke at a masons meeting, said the average A explained how shorter hours represented a release from the domination of life by labour. George Sparks said the average age of a mason at home is 55 or 56 years, but in this colony it will not reach 50 if we are to go on as we are. Bear in mind, March in and he was saying this, I think in March, March in Melbourne can be stinking hot with 42 degree days. Uh, which was whether that these English migrants were, or, or British migrants, were really not used to or, or cut out for. Now we get up at five o'clock and do not return till seven. There is 14 hours a man is away from home. How can we call them homes? No, they are only places for us to sleep in. For as soon as we get home and have got our supper, or whatever we may call it, it is time to go to bed again. James Galloway, who was one of the leaders of the Stonemasons Union, uh, who really sort of advocated this also related this to the condition of these workers as migrants to this place far, far, far away from their homes. That we have come 16,000 miles to better our condition and not to act the mere part of machinery. And let me just add in there again, there is that theme of separating from the sense in which people had been enslaved by the industrial revolution to the machine and not to act the mere part of machinery and that it is neither right nor just that we should cross the trackless regions of immensity between us and our fatherland to be rewarded with excessive toil a bare existence and a premature grave they also felt that getting the 8-Hours Day would improve the moral and social conditions of uh, life. That people could take care of their families, take care of their children, not just sort of uh, sort of participate fully in the full richness of life. John Ivey, a painter, uh, explained at one of the 8-Hour Day marches in 1859, it would be easy to show that protracted hours of labour is the prolific source of social disorder, domestic discord, juvenile delinquency, mental imbecility, religious apathy and indeed all the long train of evils which result in the indulgence of the most immoral and debasing pursuits. The theme of the wicked, wicked Babylon uh, in, the, in the form of industrial capitalism. And in some ways, of course, the claim that the eight hours day would lead to moral improvement, let's say, is partly a response to views that if uh, the eight hour day were introduced, workers would simply go and drink at the pub and engage in dissolution. And there was a conscious effort by many of these uh, workers and unionists and community leaders to separate the denigration let's say of working class culture um, by some elites who wanted to retain longer working hours and uh, espouse this genuine claim to a right to improve their lives and also to engage in uh, I guess, citizenship, full social citizenship. So, for example, uh, Thomas Eaves, who was a mason and president of the Trades Hall Council, said in, in uh, 1856, it was to the great fact that they had succeeded in getting the hours of labour so reduced in this colony that the erection of the present Trades Hall was to be attributed and indeed... That's a key thing for any visitors to Melbourne. The Trades Hall is very deeply associated with with the eight hours day and social improvement and temperance movement. Um, it had been said by their detractors and by the enemies of the eight hour system that the working man would spend the leisure hours so obtained in drunkenness and dissipation. This however was a theory that had been long exploded he believed the working men of this colony were destined to play such an important part in the history and affairs of this country as had never been done by working men of any country in any former age. And so it's not just I guess a claim for individual social citizenship it's also a growing assertiveness of I guess, labor as a social group and part of the formation of labor movements, unions, labor parties, and the whole uh, box and dice in the second half of the 19th century. But it's also not just a, a political dimension, but it's also a kind of a cultural aspect of things. So one prominent mason, Thomas Smith, Tom Smith, there you go, a uh, famous name uh, was anxious that working men have more time for pleasure and recreation they ought to benefit as well as others by public libraries and other places of instruction and amusement similarly uh, carpenter thomas lever said to what was the future greatness of the colony necessarily attached why to the mental improvement of the working classes all branches of trade wanted time for study of an evening for there was no labouring man who could afford to dispense with study and indeed in the 1870s you get widespread systems of public education and, and there's a very strong association with the eight hour day and um uh, improvement societies and mechanics institutes and self-education and a sort of autodidact culture, a self-educated culture. Indeed, one particular striking statement which came from 1858 was a, a Mason, Copperthwaite, whose, whose um, first name was not quoted in the paper who hoped that the Eight Hours Day would, here I quote, would bring many pens into existence. Many pens, as in writing pens, into existence. And their writing would be, and here I quote again, no dead men's bones, but a living literature of their own. A mason's, a bricklayer's, a carpenter's literature. A literature which would go far To sap the foundation of every throne of despotism in the world. And as I was doing my PhD, I must say, uh, regretfully, because I was searching for literature that described the actual working experiences and lived experiences of carpenters, etc. Unfortunately, it didn't really come into existence. There was a little bit, I guess, but it wasn't as broadly spread as people Hoped, but anyhow, I hope that gives you a bit of a sense of the flavour of the the profound, the breadth and the importance and the meaning of the uh, eight-hour day to people, which was not just about work conditions, but it was actually about living a decent life, uh, a life of full self-realisation, of self-social, full social citizenship that was genuinely uh, enabled the complete flourishing I guess of uh, the person and not just uh, their manual labor uh, enslaved to the bosses so that is uh, the building unions and the 8-hour day a little case study of the meaning of the 8-hour day drawn from my uh, PhD now the last little topic I'm going to talk about today is really about uh, looking back now having learned a little bit about how the 8 day came into being as a kind of a you know that, that there's been millennia of arrangements for regulating the working day through customs and practice and institutions and laws but it's really the the kind of fixed concept of a regular working day of eight hours really comes into being in the nineteenth century in response to the Industrial Revolution and other transformations of worldwide capitalist development. And it is expresses both real material circumstances, let's say, but it also Brings into play a whole set of ideas and cultures around what's a fair balance between life and work, um, health and work, control and and doing as you're told sort of thing. So there's a whole lot of ideas about you know reward for effort and all that sort of thing that are, are sort of tied up in the concept of a working day. It's not just not just that and. Today, so let's if we if we take that on board and understand that, and look back and say, well, what about the working day today? Is the concept of the eight-hour day still relevant to us today? And clearly, I think as I might have said to Freya last week, you know, we today, uh, despite our grumbles about the sort of murky boundaries between work and work uh, invading non-work time or, you know, the sort of long office hours of uh, a city lawyer, we're a long way from the experience of a child labourer, you know, dark satanic mill in the 1830s in industrial England, working, let's say, 12 or 14 hours a day in incredibly unhealthy conditions, chained to a machine, or even that of a railway navvy builder's labourer in 19th century Victoria, But we still have our our, our issues with controlling and regulating the working day. And one of those things is clearly compared to 1856 or even compared to 1956. People in Western well-developed countries like Australia and America, etc. Really most people around the world do a lot less manual labour. It's simply simply a less common thing. So much more work is done in our heads rather than with our hands. Uh, It's done sitting at a desk, not out in the open, under the blazing sun, working one's muscles. Today we are on to what some people claim is the fourth industrial revolution. And although I'm a little bit sceptical of ideas like that, there's no doubt that there have been profound transformations in the organisation of the economy, etc., which have a deep impact on our working lives. So, I mean, the World Economic Forum, uh, which again is a sort of a source of a bad prophecy and suspicious ideas, but the World Economic Forum says that the first, so let's just explain what the fourth industrial revolution means so the world economic forum says that the first industrial revolution used water and steam power to mechanize production okay people understand that pretty clearly the second industrial revolution which is really I guess from about I don't know late 19th century used electric power to create mass production Uh, so I mean let's think the sort of Ford the you know, Ford factories and that sort of thing. The third industrial revolution used electronics and information technology to automate production. So this is really beginning, I guess, in the 1970s a lot. Um, it's part of the shedding of uh, manufacturing and other kind of workforces in from that period. And then a fourth industrial revolution is building on the third digital revolution uh, which we all understand especially those of us who create podcasts the digital revolution that has been occurring since the middle of the last century It is characterized by a fusion of technologies that is blurring the lines between the physical digital and biological spheres and I guess probably also between the world of life and family and the life of work. The speed of current Uh, breakthroughs it says has no historical precedent when compared with previous industrial revolutions the fourth is evolving at an exponential rather than a linear pace moreover it is disrupting almost every industry in every country and the breadth of depth of these changes herald the transformation of entire systems of production management and governance so look that may or may not be true but clearly there are significant uh, things changing whether they're going to be really of quite the same scale of the first industrial revolution I'm not 100% sure looking back but it does create this same sort of sense in which we have a big change in our systems of production, management and governance in our workplaces The way in which we organise ourselves collectively and how we think about work is needing to respond accordingly. In the same way, I guess, as the eight hour day emerged partly as a response to the first industrial revolution. Perhaps we're seeing new ways of, I guess, regulating a reasonable working day uh, emerging from this fourth industrial revolution. And there are clearly lots of ways in which we experience that. Uh, and a lot of them have been heightened and brought to the fore clearly by the pandemic and all the sort of stay at home rules and lockdown rules and all that sort of thing. So, a lot more people work from home. Well, uh, during the pandemic, a hell of a lot more people work from home. Um, there are often these sort of fuzzy boundaries between time, family, and attention. And the home thing is interesting, isn't it? So there's, you know, a home is both a home and family and a workplace. And then you have these fuzzy boundaries of time and family and attention. So how do you fit in the homeschooling? How do you fit in the making dinner and all the housework and all that sort of thing? Then you have the sort of gig economy and sort of part-time work and those kind of things. And clearly also the possibility to do things remotely uh, detached and in a very different way. As we sort of work through that, we're going to continue to try to find ways to put reasonable boundaries around the working day to control those aspects of time and and attention and hours and fitting work into a rounded life so there's a lot of continuity what the actual solution is going to be one doesn't really know but the concept of the eight-hour day as a cultural means to live a rounded life within the constraints of having to work is really kind of still be with us and perhaps we we just ultimately develop something a little bit different and I suspect one in which people, individuals will have a lot more autonomy really because uh, there's a lot more power there for the individual doing office work uh, which has some pretty fuzzy boundaries than a stonemason in the 1850s, or a child factory worker in 1830s Manchester. But with that, I, I, I wonder also if there is also some sense of, a loss of sense of craft, maybe, in people's working lives. You know, the people talk about jobs, uh, I, I want to use a term that begins with B, and has two L's and the consonant SH and ends in another consonant T but I don't want to say that on air to give my podcast a explicit rating but those kind of jobs people say are, are very common in the world of knowledge work where you're just pushing around I guess paper pushes would be an old version of that people are just sort of selling the brand and doing all sorts of uh, sort of weird things that are meaningful within an organization but don't necessarily lead to a product like a building or a a shoe or a crop or a you know a, a piece of metal brought from the ground so the the more intangible nature of so much of our work presents some real difficulties because it's harder to, it contributes to that fuzziness of of the place of work in our lives. So although uh, some labour historians might see the question of time, as a continuing class issue I tend to see it as a much more complex set of cultural frameworks where we have this very tangled set of ideas with which we try to wrangle our lived experience let's say of finding meaning in work and rest and recreation and family and health and life and drawing reasonable boundaries between them. So they're my sort of reflections on where is the 8-Hour Day today. So just summarising then as I conclude the podcast, I'd say that the 8-Hour Day emerges as a cultural, regulated, uh, socially organised response to the Industrial Revolution and the global transformations across the world uh, that occur really in the 19th century with the penetration of so many societies by industrial capitalism and it's not only a story of class struggle of the labor movement of of you know capitalism destroying the world and the workers fighting bravely back in a united way Although so much of the history is written in those terms. But it's a very complex cultural and social history. One which changes people's concepts of identity. And their concepts of time. And their concepts of the boundaries between meaningful activity. And, and uh, their family and their health. And all sorts of uh, other things. And understanding this past helps us see the complexity of our own efforts to control the boundaries and purposes of work and labor and effort in our own lives to give some meaningful limits to how much we work, how much we rest and how much we play. So that's it for the first of seven uh, episodes responding to the questions posed to me last week by Freya Rick in the episode 22, A Canon of Our Own. If you're joining the podcast for the first time with this one, go back and listen to those seven challenges. Next week, I am going to move on to the fall of the Roman Empire. And I've also had a little bit of listener feedback uh during the week that although people appreciate the wonderful Ezra Pound who has been closing my show for twenty episodes or so now with the uh, excerpt from one of his magnificent peas and cantos, they'd maybe like a little bit of a break from the uh the ...ancient tones of the ageing Ezra Pound in the 1960s sometime... ...and so I thought maybe appropriately for this week... ...I might go out with a bit of archival sound... uh, ...to keep up that tradition of the Burning Archive... ...of using archival sound... ...and listen to a bit of a work song as we're going out... ...but still let us remember... As Ezra Pound said in those Pisan Cantos, "What thou lovest well, will not be reft from thee." Take care, everyone. Bye. Breaking rocks out of here on the chain gang, breaking rocks and serving my time. Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Cause it done convicted me a crime Hold it steady right there while I hit it Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working And working But I still got so terribly far to go